Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Lawrence Harding, PT, Director of Fitness at Axis Project New York City and President of Spinal Mobility. He will be presenting an introduction to spinal mobility, level 1, 2, and 3. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks Smith on Wednesday, September 28, 2016, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. NIDLER Grant Number 90SI5011-01-00. NIDLER is a center within the Administration for Community Living and Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, some of you have seen components of this um, at different conferences over the last year that mine and myself have been going to specifically Asia and also the ASCIP um, conferences. But uh, typically at the conferences, we're purely talking about the technique. Um, how many of us here are PTs and OTs? And good, I'd like to see the good balance. And so I wanted to also in this talk present more information about the Access Center, uh, which is a center that we run, manage the general manager out of New York City. And so, um, as Jeannie said, I'm a physical therapist, graduated from LIU many years ago, went to work at Mount Sinai, and eventually tracked my way over the 12, 15 years I was working at Sinai into spinal cord and deep into spinal cord work in outpatient where I finally settled. I was essentially doing an 80% caseload all of spinal cord injury in an outpatient setting. And the question and where spinal mobility itself came out of was that issue of what happens after rehab, number one. And secondly, what do we have apart from upper extremity activities that can force activity into the trunk because at that time the issue of overuse syndromes and issues with the shoulder overuse was getting to be really appreciated and I wanted to go more into the core because balance and trunk control is one of the most specific losses with spinal cord injury. There are many others. And so I bumped into a couple of uh, patients who later now are friends and colleagues and they started when they got their lives back together, an organization called Wheeling Fords, which does a lot of different things in the city. Um, we do sport, adaptive sporting activities. We have a scholarship foundation helping people to return to school. We do a wheelchair loaner and donor program. But the main thing that they did in the time, a couple of years ago, we opened a space called the Access Project, and that's on 112th Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan. And as I said, it's been open for two years. And it's this multidisciplinary center where myself, a physical therapist as the director of fitness, we have a director of yoga, and the gentleman in the back there in white is George Gallego, being very active in the city, doing a lot of uh, promotion, and he has a not-for-profit working in housing, and we work with people as well to get them housing. And uh, the other guy was Alex Elegudin, and we tried to get people coming in, people with long-term chronic disabilities that tend to be neurologically based, you know, they're things that don't get better. Um, so in the per percentages-wise, our population, I would say, is about 30, 40% spinal cord injury, 30% people with MS, people with CP, and then the other, like, 10% would be people with, uh, let's see, spina bifida, you get the old muscular dystrophy member rolling around, and so we help them get back into not only activity, but also do things that will improve their life and improve their quality of life specifically. We have equipment that's all accessible for the members, and we also take them through activity because we have trainers, they're certified trainers, and I, as the one person within the directorship who can link medical to fitness, I evaluate every single member who comes in for any limitations as far as whatever they can do in fitness. We have a book system wherein I document exactly what their program should be and also contraindications don't put them on the standing frame ever, for example. And the trainers take them through their paces, giving them not only fitness activities, putting them on motormates, helping them do classes as well. We have spin classes, we have interval classes, and we're trying to develop more stretch classes, all in our space. We do yoga, as I mentioned, that we have a yoga instructor come in, 
couple of times a week. Not only does she do chair yoga, she also does summer mat work. We have a boxing program coming in, aerobic, and also trunk control activities we're doing with the members. And this is one of the last new things we started, night glow uh, spin class. It's really, really fun. And then we do finger painting and all the kids love it. Um, then we've been talking with uh, one of the therapists at um, NYU Langone. Her name is uh, Katie Note, Note. And she last year asked if we could host a training day for her little kids who are transitioning from power systems to manual systems or vice versa. And we do a regular wheelchair mobility class. I've had ramps and curbs and all kinds of obstacles built that the members participate in. We do our class every Wednesday. And so they came in and the kids, we had their parents sit and talk about wheelchair maintenance, different kinds of power or manual systems. And then we went out into the park. It was so much fun. This is one of the last classes I've instituted there when one of uh, the high tetras, a friend of mine came in and said, Lawrence, guess what I cooked? I cooked some lasagna. And I thought, you C5, C6, how do you? And so cooking for quads came out of that. It's a four week program. We do it once every week for four weeks and we talk about quad friendly cooking and quad friendly food. And it's not just spinal cord, which is why I like the word quad. It's also anybody with tetraplegic issues or manipulative issues and also trunk control issues. And um, we talk about good food. You're not gonna be making souffles and flambés, probably not, but solid food. It has to be in small quantities. We talk about lifting, carrying things in covered containers. We talk about cutting, protecting yourself with guards, using the right equipment. Adaptive equipment is available for cooking when you are tetraplegically injured. And so we go through the four weeks. One week is breakfast. We just had breakfast. This is our third round. We cook a whole from scratch meal of breakfast. We do one meal of lunch, one meal of dinner, and then we host, this all takes place at Axis, but the fourth event for the class is hosted at one of the members' homes, and we talk about fire. We talk about flame and heat. We talk about induction. We talk about the difference in using gas versus electric, and then we talk about protection, thermal clothing, thermal aprons, things like that. You can get gloves to protect yourself. And it's nice because I love to cook, and at the end of it, you get a nice meal. So it's a little bit of a training, and it's also a nice social gathering. It's a full calendar that we give them every week, and we try to change it up as often as needs to be so members continue to be involved. I've just started a new, a new crafts class, and we're going to be knitting. And all the members say, you know, I was so much better. My hands were so much better when I was knitting or macrameing or crocheting. And it makes a difference for the OTs in the house. And so it's been fun getting that going. Spinal mobility ultimately started with the technique, and the technique really is the foundation for all the things that we do. The eight-week class, which is an eight-week session, again, once a week, where I get uh, people with spinal cord injury, and uh, now I'm bringing in a couple of new attendees who have MS just to evaluate, and we have them come in and they go through this eight-week program. I'll explain further. The six-hour workshop is the full workshop where we teach spinal mobility to anybody who comes in. It's a full credited course. You get CEUs for that. And spinal mobility, we do one course for the level one activities, and then we do a second course for the level two and three activities. And we also do practical services when we go to school. So we're going to be going to College of Staten Island in a couple of weeks, but essentially Columbia, Hunter, where I do adjunct work there as well. We've been to downstate. And so getting out and going to the schools is part of what Spinal Mobility wants to do, to get information about work to do, not only with the technique, but how to work with people with spinal cord injury. And then lecture demonstrations like this all over. So the eight-week boot camp, is this, that's what I call it, a boot camp. It's staffed by students from all the schools that I can pull in students from second year and above only. So they've taken their neuro class. And they come in, we usually have about uh, 20 to 25 participants with spinal cord at all different levels. And the students are put into teams, four teams, and they work with the participants. In the four hours each session, eight sessions, in the four hours, we talk about, uh, you know, they go through resistive exercises for an hour, aerobics slash pulmonary exercises for an hour. They do an hour on the mat 
with spinal mobility so the students get a chance to learn the technique, play with it, and the participants get a chance to get on a mat. Because you'll ask people who've been out of rehab, when was the last time you were on a mat? And they go, which year is this? Which decade is this? They don't get on a mat. How could they get on a mat? And so getting them on a mat, stretching them out, putting them through their paces is a really good component of the class. And then because, in my opinion, as a therapist, I didn't have time, and ideally when I'm doing clinical work, I really don't have time to teach people about exercising per se. I give them exercise, do this, do that, do this. But then you go to the gym and you know that a lot of people who do exercise don't really know what they're doing out there. You know, they don't know what makes a resistive exercise. They don't really know what makes an aerobic exercise. And so we teach them about exercise during the class and how they can exercise themselves. We take measures, pre and post measures, and we've been starting to find that those measures are coming out with significant results. We do functional measures, the skim, the cue. We do wheelchair uh, skills testing. We do some psychosocial measures as well, just to make sure the class is worth doing. And um, I think the participants really get a lot out of it. As I said, we go around and we talk to different schools and we talk to different um, institutions. Um, the next institution, I think we're trying to work something out with Bellevue to return and go and do an in-service for them as well. We've been up to Burke doing level one, two, and three, and maybe we'll talk to your institution. We can do a full six hour here at some point. All right, so what is the technique? The technique is a way to get activity into the trunk, and I think it's a good idea because, of course, functionally we need better con control. But as clinicians, it's hard to get a handle on how do I work this system of what's between here and here. We have to understand several things about the trunk. The trunk, of course, is triplanar and doesn't move in one direction. It also, you have to incorporate, like with other trainings, motor learning principles in. You can't just do. The person has to feel at the same time. And so sensation and, mo and movement are part of what brings the technique into the fore and allows it to be really, really useful in the clinic. Superficially, you have your back muscles. And I'm just going to go through the anatomy, the neurology, a quick minute, just so we have a base for knowledge. Um, you have your superficial muscles, latissimus, and also trapezius make up the superficial back muscles. Think about those two. Trapezius comes in really, really high neurologically. It's up there at cranial nerve 11. And latissimus similarly comes in around six, just before triceps, actually. You start getting your lats in. And where do they insert? Trapezius goes down to T6, and lats go all the way down to the thoracolumbar fascia and hence into the ilium. And so that gives us a nice in, actually, for the high tetras for the mid-level, sorry, to the low tetras from C5-6 and down within tetraplegia, it gives us an in into something that helps us with the back. And so deeper still, when you go to the lower levels, you start getting your rectus spinae in, and you then get in your multifidy and your transversal spinalis group, the postural holders, the proprioceptive kinesthetic muscles that allow us to know where we are in space and to also to get back from places of within, say, the elastic zone when you've gone into a little stretch on your Z plates and your ligamentous tissue, it brings us back with that information. And so those deep, deep, deep muscles become very, very useful. And as they come in segmentally, you can incorporate them into the technique as well. In the front, we've got our four layers of abdominal muscles as well. And so thinking about the brachial plexus, as I said, you have good activity by the time you get to C7, and definitely by this time a person is injured at neurologically the C8 level, they can work their trunk fairly well in the back, and then I'll talk about what we do for the front in a few. We know the Asia, and so we can assess people's Asia level and determine maybe their activity, and also using the impairment scales, we can definitely determine whether or not somebody is going to be able to engage on a stronger basis or on a weaker basis. But neurologically, the technique, as long as you have sensation at Asia B, and as long as you have some motoric activity at Asia C incompleteness, you can definitely engage with the activities. So, we use tone, and this is where I come to talk about the tone. In my days, in the early 90s, tone was always bad. Tone never had any good qualities or aspects about it. And so the process was to kill the tone, pump them full of baclofen and just suppress the tone. We now know that tone has its use. It builds and maintains muscle mass. And if you look at Manny, who is injured, and I'll, he'll introduce himself, Manny has good muscle mass because of his tetraplegic level, given it away. 
And also, tone can be useful for circulation in terms of muscle activity to help move fluids around. And we know functionally, sometimes therapeutically, you can help somebody and teach them how to use their tone to do a functional activity if it works. And so, how does that work though? It works because of irradiation and Sherrington old stuff. We know irradiation happens from the larger muscles, the stronger muscles into the weaker muscles within the flexion or the extension pattern. And so if you can irradiate and irradiate successfully, then that person might be able to get movement and with that additional movement, that person might be able to get sensation and then you can get the engine going. Because one of the things that people were constantly saying when they first tried the technique, people with injury that is, um, they first tried the technique is, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I had that. And often it's simply because they've never moved that way or they've never been shown how to move that way. And it's like learning a new sport or new movement pattern. If you don't, if you've never moved like that, how do you know how to move? And so teaching them the technique allows them to use irradiation successfully for additional functional mobility and from the front. So we know that flexion causes overflow into the hip flexors and the dorsiflexors and extension does the converse. And so we can use that to build motion, all right? Biomechanically, we have three forces, essentially the same three forces you use when you do a, like a long leg bracing system where you have an anterior force of the hip, posterior the knees, and then theoretically you have an anterior force of the feet. So in a sitting position or standing, you also have the same forces going through the lumbar spine. Now the spine is not one unit. The spine is essentially three units between T1 and L5. You have the thoracic, you have the thoracolumbar section, and then you have the lumbar section, and they move in very different ways. If you think about, number one, the facet joints alignment in the thoracic spine and in the lumbar spine, that's one huge difference between the two parts of the spine. Then, secondly, if you think about the rib cage and how the rib cage also limits the thoracic mobility, you're talking about very different things, and we have to look at them in very different ways. But biomechanically, we can still, in one plane at least, say that you have the similar activities. If I want to go taller and more into extension, I have to have an anterior force at the thoracolumbar junction. I have to go posteriorly at the shoulder girdle, and theoretically, I'll also be going posteriorly at the pelvic girdle as well. And conversely, the same thing happens when you go into kyphosis. And this is a good posture, not for sitting and doing your computer work, but it's a good posture for reaching your shoes if you're in long sit position. So we do want to go to those extremes of both flexion and extension as much as possible. The forces are still the same. Not discounting, and this comes in mostly when we're talking about level two activities. Not discounting now coupled motions of the spine, which brings in a whole big mess in terms of alignment. And when you think a lot of uh, people with spinal cord injury, especially chronic spinal cord injury, Remember, in inpatient rehab, you tend to either see people with fresh injuries or some returning person with a specific problem that you can address. But the people with chronic problems that don't have to come in acutely, we often do not see. And so over time, it's very common that somebody will develop some kind of scoliotic curvature in their spine, even early on, depending on the imbalances of the trunk. And so three-dimensional and coupled motions of the spine have to be addressed when you think about your mobility and you think about mobilizing the trunk itself. Factor that into the mix somewhere because it does come in in mobility and also joint, uh, joint mobility itself. The principles that make spinal mobility unique are these three. We use a segmental lock, and Manny, you can start going over. We use a segmental lock we use a, uh, for stability or mobility, that's where the belting comes in. We use a distal lock. Now, why a distal lock? How many times do we see, especially the middle to the high tetras, like this? Because they just have not learned how to lock down into their low traps. The traps are there, but they've just never been shown and they just don't actively work low traps. And low traps tend to be one of the weaker groups of muscles in the back anyway, even without neurological injury. So, the distal lock helps them to guide that. And also, if you think about the floor, we want to lock into the floor. I'm locked into the floor. Everyone is familiar with the center of gravity. That's just above L2, right? Everyone is familiar with the center of mass. It changes depending on my morphology. But the center of pressure is where you make contact with the floor, or what's the lowest point in which you find stability. And right now, center of pressure is on my two feet. Now it's on my one feet. What happens with spinal cord injury? 
you lose your center of pressure that you used to since you were one and a half years old, the floor, you lose the floor. And so where is their floor? Their floor is wherever the new floor happens to be neurologically and also m m neuromuscularly. And so segmentally, we can teach them how to work this new floor. And if you can understand that, then everything else is just movement, right? So reverse muscle activity neither is new. What is one? Segmental mobility, as I said, by putting the belt at different levels on him and around him, I give three things. One, we give proprioceptive input so he knows that there's something there. Secondly, by putting the belt there, I can physically give him input against which to create a floor. And thirdly, by putting the belt there, to some extent, knowing that there's something there, we can do efficient work because one of the limitations without some kind of controlling tool is that the people get tired before they actually can learn. And so the belting segmentally helps them to work efficiently. If I put the belt higher, it's easier. If I put the belt lower, it's harder. I can also give them what they need. I want to start that engine of sensation leading to movement to sensation to movement and forward and so on. We also, as I said, use the distal lock. And it gives them, again, that proprioceptive input into lockdown. It helps them to find their center of pressure so that they can start to get away from this elevated position and begin to be locked down into their sit, into their sitting and their, their bodies themselves. And thirdly, reverse muscle activity. Again, I didn't make this up. We see it all the time when, um, as I joke, when I go and visit some friends who live in an accessible apartment, I know that they're there and that I can follow where they live. I don't even have to know because there's street marks around every corner right about this level. Why? As they're going around the corner, they don't push. No, they just hold onto the wall and they get slingshot around the wall. They use distal lock to produce this proximal mobility, just as you and I do when we're dancing. If you're dancing in couple dancing, there's a lot of distal locking and throwing, right? It's the same principle that uh, astronomers, astronomers, yeah. Astronomers? Anyway, when you send a satellite and you want it to get to Jupiter over there, you send it around the satellite here and then it flies off. It takes some of the potential energy of the planet here and uses it to change direction. So it's the same idea. And so this distal lock allows us to use muscles in ways that when you think about where we define muscles, they're not usually thought of that way. For example, the mid-traps. We tend to learn open chain actions. You know, what are the mid-traps? They're scapular adductors, right? Everyone knows that. But they're not, but they're also trunk rotators. If I'm distally locked on a pole and I do activate them, I will rotate. Similarly, what are the lats? Lats, we always say, oh, lats are internal rotators and they're humeral extensors. Yeah, they are in open chain, but what are they in closed chain? And when do we actually use them in closed chain? Two occasions, doing a pop, closed chain proximal movement, and monkey bars. If I really am here and I really want to pull, I will pull with my lats into extension and I'll be able to propel myself forward. So they become trunk extensors in many ways. And so we can use the lats, the same lats that come in at C6, C6, 7, we can use them for all this control activity by engaging in lockdown with the distal lock. And the segmental stability can help. So we put the arms in different positions, dracula position, it's a flexion position, it's actually the end of the PNF patterning for D1. We can put them in an abducted open position, and now we have the full extension of the body on the upper thoracic especially, and that's the D2 flexed position, right? And so, or we can do open chain activities, because sometimes you have to reverse things. It isn't only about distal stability and proximal mobility moving the body. Sometimes you do have to reach and grab your beer. And so we also, of course, can engage with proximal stability and distal mobility activities using the technique as well. You can do a lot of things with it. So, as I mentioned, there are some of your ADLs that use distal stability and proximal mobility activities. Extraskeleton walking, for example, you lock and you self-propel through the assistive device. And these are activities typically which would be needing some proximal stability so you can manipulate tools and objects distally. And so that's the point of the technique. Let's look at the technique itself. 
As I said, there are three levels. And so level one is mostly sedentary activities, short sitting in the chair. It's a nice place to begin. And the nice thing about it is, A, if somebody doesn't want to get out of the, their chair, somebody can't get out of the chair. You know, I work alone, and uh, I don't have any aids to help me transfer or guard. And so I, there's some cases when I won't transfer somebody. Sorry, it's not nice. Or they've just had an accident, and they don't want to get out of the chair. There are options. Now, the first thing we have to do, and I'm just going to make this a little tighter, is get the person into active sitting. And if you can't see, please feel free to come up and watch. Now, Manny is actively holding himself actively up here. He can let go with both hands, and he's got a good, modicum, good amount of control here. He's working because over time, and Manny is very good at this, he's learned how to engage into his drop down through his lats and through his tri traps. Manny, could you tell us about your injury, uh, your level of injury, and how long? And Good. So C5, C6, C7-ish, maybe the left side, which is a little stronger. Um, but definitely Asia C. Full Asia C. Manny had, was tested. We were out doing a street fair. Manny was tested as far as his sensations by some people, some students from the School of Podiatry in Manhattan. And he had full score sensation-wise in all the microfilament testing. And so he's got it. So sensation has to be there because if you don't feel, you can't move. And so we can do several, and if you could just change, please. We can do several activities. We can do flexion extension. Now, let's talk about motions because this is really where it gets really simple. Once you can understand the technique, then you can put people into the different positions and then start to build your own technique. But the motions are pretty much the same. There's flexion, there's extension, your side bends, there are rotatory motions, and then you have combinations of flexion, rotation, or extension, rotation. That essentially is it as far as what the trunk does. Level one. We can also introduce level two activities and level three activities because there is also a shift. There's the, the uh, um, what do you say, uh, shoulder shifts. I was going to say, yeah, the shoulder girdle can shift on a fixed pelvis. Okay? Or the pelvis can shift on a fixed shoulder girdle, right? You can also have, of course, pelvic protraction, retraction, elevation, depression, relative to what the shoulder girdle is doing. So in many ways, the pelvis can move more than the shoulder girdle often gets a chance to. And so we can incorporate those in level two. But as far as the spine and the trunk itself, those five or six actions are pretty much what we're going to be able to work with and work through because they'll engage in a triplanar fashion all the motions of the trunk. And so we can do flexion extension. Let's go into flexion. And he's going into scratch. He could go into a Dracula in the front flexed position already. It's not that one is easy. It's just different. And so as you were. And I give him the cue. I pull him back slightly. And he activates forwards. And I pull him back. And he activates forwards. I pull him back and he activates forwards. Or we can do extension, he activates and he locks back. And now it's not triceps because he's not pushing the ball away. And people ask, why a ball? Why not give him something stable? No, I want him to learn how to lock into himself. The ball is there just to teach. And eventually the goal is to take away the ball and have him lock into himself. At some point we'd been doing this together and Manny said, you know, I understand what this is. As I'm sitting here and I need to do something here, it isn't about moving this. It's about locking down here, the floor. And so he now understands if I lock into here, I have a floor, I have a center of pressure on which I can produce this. And often we're very worried about this falling over and we're not thinking about what's happening at the floor. And the technique allows people to use and find that. And so let's do side bend and return. I give the resistance on the return, come back. Okay, and he's trying to push with the triceps, but it ain't gonna work. <laughs> and he has to use it and go, there we go. And I can resist into the return because falling over is easy. It's the return that I want to stress. We can do a pure flexion action and let's get you into Dracula on the front and you can do bilaterally. He doesn't need to be holding on because he can get it or he can go extension. Now extension is work. But am I doing, stop please, am I doing all the work? No, he's doing most of the work. When I give people input, manual input, I can, get, I can say, 
I'll give you as much as you can take. I'll give you as much assistance as you need. And I'll give you as much resistance as you can take. And so if I can input with the Sherrington's um, irradiation, if I can irradiate with more resistance, let it be so, as long as it's within that area where they have control. Again, balanced training, you're not teaching people, you're not going to push people so far they're going to fall over, you're going to teach them how to find their cone of stability. And so too far will be always too far. But I can give him assistance to a certain level and I can gauge it and I can document and say today I gave him 20% rather than 30% to the point where I don't need to give him any and he can bring himself back and he can increase his own cone of stability that way. So for somebody who's moderately high tone, Manny isn't particularly, some people can go all the way down and they just lock and they learn how to into themselves and it is useful for that. So that's the external lock. I like the external lock just because, as I said, for those situations where I can't or won't, it's there. Secondly, it's a safe, as I said, place, and it allows me to run around people and do things. Whereas with the next position, which is the therapist becomes the lock, then you're there. The nice thing, though, when you are the lock is, we can go back towards the table. The nice thing is that when you are the lock, you can really then give people that input from yourself to them. So the first position could be still the patient is in the chair, but now I'm going to be the lock. I'm going to sit on the edge of the mat. Again, please feel free to come forward. And so we'll lock his chair. Now, the first thing is again, actually, could you pass me the ball, the red ball? No, the green with the chair. Mm, let's see. I'll, it is low? Okay, let's bring the green one with the chair. Now, Manny just brought up a good point in that when I do this, I usually have a setup with curbs. You know the green curbs with the risers? I usually set up a curb with the risers set up so that we can bring the ball to a place where you can really get engaging. That was a little too low. And of course, we don't want to go above 90 degrees. This is okay. His humerus is not at close to 90 even. We don't want to go to humeral 90 degrees because we want to look after the rotator cuff, please. And so there needs to be some kind of support for the ball and that helps him to find that active hold again and again is in active state. I put the belt just on my low ribs so it's not on my lumbar spine and shearing myself and it's uncomfortable but on my rib cage I have that solidity and I can really just lock into my abs and from here I can challenge him and have him really learn how to work that. Imagine you're sitting on a bus ride and you're going over bumps. That's what's happening to you. You're sitting on a rojo. That's what's happening to you and learning to control that is a good thing. So I get a lot of patients who come in to meet me and they've been on a two-hour bus ride or car ride and they go, oh God, my shoulders are dead. I'm sorry, you're a tetra. What am I gonna do with you with dead shoulders? <laughs> and so it helps when they have better balance. It gets therapy more into their bodies. And so in this position, yeah, we can do the same five motions, okay? But now I can give him control actively through here and I can also give him manual resistance, just flexion, please. Oh, you can use your left arm and forwards, and now pull back, pull open. And look at how little work I'm doing for Manny as he locks back and pulls himself back. He's learned how to get really strong in his trunk. We can do an open chain action. Let's try one of those. So he's going up to open the fridge, all right? But he's got uh, the cup in one hand, and he doesn't want to put the cup down. And pull, and pull. Typically, of course, one would expect he'd fall forwards because of the reaction of the pull. He isn't because he can learn how to really lock. Similarly here, push forwards. And why is he not falling backwards? Because you can see, and if you're closer, you can see, and look at all of that activity coming through as he can overflow from his pecs, which are active, his C5, 6, and he can overflow into his abdominals enough to be able to maintain his stability above the level of the belt. In fact, with man, he typically likes the belt very, very low. I can put it fairly low, his work. So depending on several factors, the laxity of the person, the uh, strength that they had initially, the amount of strength that can be developed into their bodies, they can do a lot of, lot of work. We'll continue. And now you can get into mm -hmm. sitting. So that's two positions, external lock, short sit, and we can do short sit in the chair, therapist lock, sorry. And from there we can go on to 
short sit at the edge of the mat. It's the same idea, but now, rather than being in their stable chair, they are on the mat, either therapist I'm in front, and we're still doing the same activities. The ball is in place, and we can guide them through. And this is a scary place to be, because you could easily land on your head. But with control, remember teaching forwards, lock, side lock, and all of the reaching activities. This allows us to show them where to find that center of pressure. We can go into long sit and do the same activities. Long sit is a wonderful place to work because of the ADL activities we do, bathing, toileting sometimes, and dressing, of course, in long sit. And so trunk control in that long sit position is really, really crucial and useful for function. Uh, let us go into hook. Your head can stay at this end. Why don't you bump to your left first, and then I can bring your head to your right. There you go. Keep going. And go. And go. And one more. Go. Um, bring the red one. So from long sitting, we can do again the same actions. Bilateral scratch in this case. We did bilateral scratch position, but we did the flexion, and you could really feel the work coming into his trunk. Oh, uh, no, hook line. We're going to go directly into this. And we can do side bend. Nice use of tone. And, or oh, we can do an open chain action, a pec press or a pull. And as I said, going into long sit, we can also do it without. Now, this gentleman here is a, not him. He is tetra. And with somebody who's tetra, has a good low level of tetra, you don't even need the stability provided by the belt. They probably have already found their floor, but you can still use the actions to work and strengthen the trunk, even though sensationally, as far as sensation, they may be able to possibly find that center of pressure on the floor. Um, you can do the same actions in long sit, with or without a belt. Level two, as I said, level two, works in non-sitting positions. Level two is comprised of hook line, quadruped, and then toll kneel. Where do these come from? If you think about uh, the child development all the way up to ambulation, those are the stages that kids go through before they get to standing and walking. Of course, you're born in flexion, you're on furrow, you extend, you go into extension, you hit the floor, boom. But then, after hitting the floor, the first position we tend to start to do is picking up our feet in the air, right? And just getting control of our abdominals. That's when the kids start to throw the legs and throw the arms. The next, we roll over. Rolling over is a major milestone in childhood development and being on your stomach. From there, getting into quadruped and learning to crawl is the next major milestone, the coordination between upper and lower extremities and the pelvic and the shoulder girdles. After that, then this is the dreaded pull-down stage when the kids start pulling down on everything that's nearby, pulling down on sheets, pulling down on tablecloths, and just getting in the way. Fourth stage is getting on their feet, holding on, and the fifth stage, of course, is ambulation. And so if we take those stages and turn them around, we can use them in exactly the way, same way to promote and propel trunk strength. And so, thank you. No shoes on the mat. Except for the patient. That was, you know, as a therapist, you get that drilled into you. Let's use the small one. This is very big. Typically, when I'm doing this in the gym, I do not have an open space behind me. Somewhere in most gyms, there's a, there's a mat in a corner, and I love corner mats because then I have safety behind myself. In demonstration places where it's usually open like this, I usually make sure, of course, somebody will be behind me. And if you do not happen to have one upstairs, I would recommend, just for safety, having somebody there, just in case. You never know. And so, we're up. And that's a good position. I, thank you. I put the legs together again, just to make sure that uh, he's got control. Now, we're in a good position here. At Manny's level, there are things he will not be able to do that somebody at a lower level can do. Cleaner, more power, but he can still use and activate the musculature because it's in there. He can go from side and pull back, and pull back. And I'm not really helping. I'm making sure his legs don't fall off, but he's doing the work. And from your right, return. And what is he doing? You can see him. He's locking down into his lats using the extension and reverse muscularly pulling his pelvis around, okay? We do this when we're rolling around on the beach, rolling around a bell. We do lock. 
It's amazing how much we lock down and we don't realize how much we're locking down. If he was at a lower injury level, then he wouldn't necessarily have to use his lats from his humerus. Because we've all squiggled around in bed on our back and moved around just using the back muscles on the surface of the floor, on the sand, on the grass. And so you can move around without the lats. You can move around on the shoulder girdle itself. And so as somebody gets stronger, I'd probably ask them to do more of these activities in a Dracula or in a flexed position. We can be here and then we can do a rotation going to scratch on one side. And now you're going to pull this around to your right. And, and if it was higher, I could expect him to really pull in and come up to this level. But this is hard for Manny, and it would be easier for somebody with tetraplegia. Everybody knows what a stability disc is, uh, the sizal discs, the air-filled discs. What I do, and some of the pictures, if you can go to a couple of other pictures in hook line, what I also do is I put a sizal disc underneath their pelvis, just like that. Why maybe he isn't moving his pelvis so much or maybe he can't activate his pelvis is because he's stuck in flat. So by putting the disc under, then I induce mobility into the pelvis, mobility that then he can pick up on for activities including pelvic elevation and lift up your left hip. And he tries, but it's hard for, it's hard for Manny. But the action is there, and we can do retraction where he pushes down and locks down into the mat in level two. We can do elevation if he was again higher, and he has some elevation. So I pull him down into lock, into depression. You're going to pull up on your hip, and there it is. And it's hard, but the elevation should be there, especially if they have the lats and the abs. And for lower levels, they'll develop some activity into quadratus lumborum as well, and that will all come in nicely. Give you a little stretch. Very good. You just released. Thank you. All right. So hook lying, as I said, is a nice starting position to start to separate what goes on between the shoulder girdle and the pelvic girdle. You can do chops. You can do lifts. You can do diagonal patterns in open chain. And you can also, as I mentioned, using the sizal disc, you can also do pelvic activity as well. From there, we can go into quadruped. Quadruped is, again, great. It takes us into positions that are useful for function. So again, if you think about a floor to chair transfer, that's one of the positions we encourage people to get to if you're using the forwards technique, correct? And so teaching people when they're in that forwards technique, sorry, forwards position, how to control their pelvis while their hands are doing what they need to do to get into position to get back up into the chair. And so quadruped is useful. Also, just being full in terms of um, sexual function. Positioning is often a limitation, and so these are the positions for people who want to challenge themselves. These are the positions that are useful also for sexual function. We can do in this quadruped position, we can do a protraction. You can see the red arrow. We can protract, pull back, protract, pull back, protract. The ball gives them that lock so they can find some place on the ball to then activate from and learn how to find that center of pressure. We can do elevation or we can do retraction. So again, in the retracted, in the protracted position, push back into my hand, push back into my hand, push back into my hand. Kind of like walking on your butt, and we do that all the time. Even without locking distally, I can move forwards in my bed, or I can move forwards on a chair, or I can move forwards if I'm sitting on a high bench. I can wiggle myself forwards, locking into my own pelvis. Um, we can do the shoulder girdle actions in quadruped extension. Again, as I keep saying, it's the same motions, but they each will challenge the patient in different ways. You can go bilaterally. Uh, Ariane's uh, para, she's uh, fairly low, T10, T11. And so she's got all those extensors, all the erector spinae to really activate. And she can, and she does. And this position, the activities allow her to really get in there and allow us to really, really work her very low towards her pelvis. And we can do tall kneel. Again, this is not something that I'm probably going to put my mid-level tetraplegic injured patients. It's not something I'm going to do in acute care. It's not something I'm probably going to do the first couple of weeks in inpatient rehab. It's not feasible. 
And there are contraindications, of course. No early fixations. You've got to have the range of motion. All the other things that still need to be worked. So it is for later rehab or outpatient level candidates or for those who want to get to really high-level sports, really high-level activities. It, it, it works for that population well. So in tall Neil, oops, sorry. I don't want you to do anything. Uh, we can do side bending, trunk flexion and, or extension. We can do open chain activities as well. In this case, shoulder flexion. We can do a rowing, like pushing on that revolving door, Keep getting the stability to push with one hand forward and push the revolving door through. Think about the amount of control you need for that. And we go then into tall kneel. Now, tall kneel, see if I can escape this and go here, is here. So, sorry, not tall kneel. Um, I'll start it from the beginning and pause. So, the final position, the final position is standing upright. And I came to standing in terms of developing, of course, that is ultimately, if you're thinking high, high level, exoskeleton use, brace walking, um, when two things would happen. Firstly, I developed a technique where taking one of these belts, it's really fun, again, using that three-point pressure system that the braces themselves come with, what you do is, in the parallel bars, you take the belt, the mobilization belt, and you sling it between the two parallel bars. Usually it's a junction where there's a little bit of a bar and it won't slide back continuously. There's usually something holding the bar itself in place. And so put the belt there and just have them lean against that in that sort of jackknife position. And then just work. Work the jackknife and learn how to be in jackknife. Actively, and then you can do in standing, you can do juggling activities, you can do throw-catch activities, you can do one-handed one -handed activities, you can do rotatory activities, you can put them in stride, again, leaning back against that belt, all in the safety of the parallel bars. And so starting that idea was, okay, this is nice, it's good, it gets them active. And then in the standing frame, getting, the second issue was just getting tired of seeing people just stand in a standing frame, and just stand. I'm sorry, it is a standing frame, I know people, but... Give them something to do. <laughs> Give them something to do. And so the idea of giving them something to do was paramount in me not sit, seeing them sing, sit around and just stand. And so this little video talks about some of the developments that we've used in terms of isolating shoulder activities, which we've been doing. You can see there will be a distal lock. There will be some level of segmental stability, either through the seat of the frame itself or through a belt. And there will be... Uh, reverse muscle activity, and then again, integrating the use of the sizal disc to provide a looseness that the pelvis can then begin to engage with. And we can do closed chain, or we can also do open chain activities at the same, as well. And so, and so this is just pure forwards flexion. And I can give resistance into the flexion aspect, or I can do extension, take him into flexion, and then really resist as he locks down, through the back of the seat into his knees if he has sensation and he can overflow that far down and he's not that high, it's not that low. Um, Vincent is about T4, something like that. And so we're not talking about people with Asia Ds or low lumbar lesions here. We're talking about true paras. And so rotatory reactions can be done and I can resist into or out of the rotation action. We can go into open chain actions as well. And so, again, he's got that distal lock on one side, so he can really engage distally and inferiorly, and then he can, how many paras do you know who cannot bring their arms up, or even one, if they're not holding onto something? And it allows them to really lock distally and through the low spine and into the low trunk. There's your pelvic retraction, and there's the stability through the, through the belting. I'll go back a little bit. And it really allows them it really allows the patient to find out how do I make that work? How do I do it and how do I promote that mobility through the lats, through the abs, and through the front? Protraction, he's pulling forwards. And then retraction, he's pushing back into my hands. And he's got that all because of that proximal, that distal stability here to get all of that mobility. So, escape, let me escape from here and go back to next.
Very good. So that's the demonstration aspects. We've been working, as I said, in the X class to take data. And um, a colleague of mine at uh, Columbia University, Dr. Slowinski, has been taking our data. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, good friend, Maneshka Pereira, she is an occupational therapist, was working at NYU. And at the time when she first started working with the technique with me, she was at Mount Sinai. And so she's my colleague. She's essentially my research head. And she's published in the OT Advanced Magazine and also presented it a couple of years ago at the AOTA conference. We similarly, as I said, have been presenting at several conferences. And that's the poster that she presented. And it's available if you guys want to get a copy of it. Um, she did a nice retrospective study. It was a small study, but it did get uh, some good results. And she was able to publish that, as I said. Um, currently, we're doing several things. Uh, during the X class last year for the first cohort, this year actually, in spring. Yeah, this year. We have two cohorts of the X class in spring for eight weeks and in fall for eight weeks. We just started the fall one. We're in our fourth week. We're going to our fourth week now. Yeah, halfway there. And so Dr. Escalon, he's one of the physiatry attendings at Mount Sinai, came with some of his residents and started doing a post-geography study using a posture uh, platform plate. They sit on it. They follow an avatar. And so we do pre, we do post. He's starting to collect data to see if you can get some positive changes. Because Dr. Slowinski also, from about three cohorts worth of data, uh, numbers is now getting somewhat reasonable. And she was able to find out, she's finding out that the functional reach, we measure functional reach pre and post. Functional reach does show significant change. And so we're hoping that we can get even more significance and then begin to publish and write. Um, we're currently in this class for the first cohort. We're doing a resistive uh, trainer, inspiro inspirometer trainer uh, test and a study, again, pre and post. And the participants in that study are given the trainer. They're given an exercise routine to do at home. And we'll see what comes out in conjunction with the other aspects of the activities within the X class, because it isn't just pulmonary actions. We're also doing, as I said, uh, resistive work. We do uh, the spinal mobility work, and we also do aerobic work on spin. We have interval, high intensity interval circuit that we put them through. We're going to be presenting at, um, we just presented at ASKIP, which is in fall. We're going to be going to the American Congress of Rehab in Chicago. And hopefully, from then on, We'll be able to continue to level two presentations for 2017 and continue just one, spreading the word that there are many more things that can be done with people with spinal cord injury, definitely after they leave rehab. That's one big tool. That's one big need out there because after rehab, it's a bleak world in terms of exercise. It's a bleak world in terms of fitness and also in terms of support. Um, especially within spinal cord injury. And the second question that spinal mobility brings to answer is, what can we do about the trunk? And I think the technique really allows us to get in there and as clinicians use the technique within the goals that we set for functional recovery. Thank you very, very much for your time. I'm glad I finished on time and got to show you guys everything. If you have a brain or spinal cord injury, stroke, or multiple sclerosis, access to world-class research is right in West Orange. Kessler Foundation researches the latest treatments for these conditions. We are looking for research volunteers with brain or spinal cord injury, stroke, or MS. We also need healthy persons to serve as controls in our studies. There is no cost to join our studies, and you may be compensated. For information, call Kessler Foundation at 844-KF-STUDY. That's 844-KF-STUDY.